Good morning. Make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. Congratulations on surviving the time change. <laughs> I've always heard about petitions floating around uh, to stop the time change. If they ever do, I guarantee every pastor signs that thing. Not a pastor in America does not sign that petition. It's always difficult for churches. Hey, if you have your Bible handy, turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. This is going to be the text that helps us today, and I'd love to just start off with it if we can. Just like to start off with this. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. It's going to be the, the main workhorse today, and we will have it up on the screen, but it's always nice to have it opened and in front of you. And it sounds like this. But we, Paul says, have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying, <clears throat> always carrying the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Um, my name is Luke. If you've not been here before, and I'm the lead teaching pastor here, very excited to teach today. I'm not a salesman. I've been told by many people that I'd be a great salesman, though. I've never done it before, but I can tell you one thing I do know about sales. There's nothing that will close a sale quite like fear. Fear is what will get people to buy whatever you're selling. Fear of losing something, fear of not getting something, right? How many of you were alive where you were considered a consumer and spending money whenever Y2K came? Raise your hand. Was there not an uptick in consumer spending right before the, the, the twilight hours before allegedly all the lights were gonna go dark. I remember how much money we spent. We were a really poor, just young couple, and I remember buying a little bit more water than I normally would have bought, and a little bit more canned beans, and an extra propane canister for the grill, and that's about as technical as I got, but people were buying all kinds of stuff. Because when the lights go dark, you want to have enough deli meat and ammo and razor wire around your property and all kinds of things because everything was going to end and your family was going to die, right? Fear will sell things. I think probably one of the biggest fears that we have as mankind, though, is death, death itself. Now, I've seen different lists of mankind's biggest fears. I know for men, our fears are a little bit different than they are for women. Men, they actually fear a few things above death, losing your hair right? <laughs> they fear losing their job, and they fear public communication, public speaking. Those are things that they fear above death, but death is always up on the list. And because of that, there's money to be made in the business of death. There's a foundation called the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, which makes up one of two outfits in America that sell cryopreservation. Some of you have heard of this. Cryopreservation is the... I guess the activity or the service of freezing your body at such a temperature that it allegedly preserves your tissues, your brain, everything, so that one day, way down the line, when science is caught up and they have cured whatever ailed you, or maybe they can even animate what was dead, then they can bring you right back to life, right? Frozen, 
I guess. Alcor has 1,500 what they call members, because they're not really dead in their eyes. Members. The membership fee is $200,000 per member, and a lot of these people, if you looked at the list of names, you'd recognize the names. They're celebrities, they're CEOs, people that can afford $200,000 and a little bit of a Hail Mary trying to beat death, right? If you did the math in your head, that's $300 million spent because of the fear of death and the hope that you can outmaneuver it and be alive. I was just telling Wes, I'm rereading a book for the third time. It's a book, it's 200 years old. It's, it's kind of a fascinating book to me. It's, uh, it's the, what's considered the original sci-fi story of all time, and it's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? Don't think the stupid Frankenstein that you're already thinking as soon as I say that, with the bolts coming out of the neck, the, the Boris Karloff view of this. This is the original literary work of Frankenstein, and the whole premise is you have a, a doctor who wants to animate dead things, take dead things, corpses. I mean, and they give you great imagery that there's dead bodies everywhere, and he, he patches them together. But upon bringing animation and life to what is dead, he immediately senses the morality of it all with deep regret. He despises his very own creation, the monster, who never has a name in the book, and then spends a good chunk of that book pursuing this monster to destroy the monster. The whole time, Dr. Frankenstein, the doctor, Victor Frankenstein, all he was doing is what these cryonic labs are still trying to do today, and that is take what is dead and make them alive. Why do you think we're so fascinated with that as a people? Fascinated technologically, scientifically, morally, even in our literature? I think the answer is very easy. It's just tattooed on our soul this desire to escape decay and escape death and become people who are alive with vibrant life. Yet, God has death for every single one of us. It says in Hebrews 9, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Ask yourself, what are you most afraid of? I think mankind is afraid of death. I think mankind is more afraid of judgment when you really look at it. This passage is terrifying to people. It's a terrifying passage for people who are leaning in their own righteousness and they're measuring their good deeds against their bad deeds. Part of my internship when I was in seminary was working with Muslims at Cal State Long Beach in the Long Beach area. And now, I didn't lead a single one of them to the Lord, no huge testimonies there, but I do remember my last time with them before I went back to Texas, before I left that internship, and they said, Luke, we don't love your Jesus like you love your Jesus, and we don't even see Jesus the way you see Jesus, but one thing we envy in all of you Christians is that you have assurance, and we do not. It's out of their mouth, not mine. You have assurance, and I wished I did, but I don't. And if you don't have assurance, then death is something to be feared, but only because judgment's waiting afterward. And that means there could be a guilty verdict. And that brings sheer terror. And the person inside of the person inside of the person will do anything to avoid that terror of judgment that comes after death. This is what Jesus says in John 12, verse 23. He's talking about himself when he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
interesting here because for us, if you are a Christian, death and judgment are redefined. Not really things to be feared anymore. To be totally honest with you, I mean, I agree with Paul. As much as I love this life and living it for Jesus, to die is gain. You go from fearing death to gaining in death. And death actually being something that starts a new life of unstained living, untainted living, unlimited living. Judgment isn't something that we fear as Christians either because it's something that fell on the shoulders of Jesus, not waiting for you. So it evokes this thanksgiving and this deep worship and this deep praise. And here we see Jesus saying that unless there is a death, there can be no life. You'll see in what I'm going to talk about today, there's a little bit of a cooperation and a hand-holding between death and life. It's hard for us to envision this, but even in this passage, we see the gospel Jesus is talking about himself. He is the seed invested into death to die. But what does it produce? It produces a company of believers, a nation of those who love Jesus, a church. You and I, if you are in Jesus, you're experiencing life because death was involved in Jesus. And right after this announcement, Jesus teaches us to live just like he did, dying to our worldly pursuits. You see, I think for the Christian, the challenge is not so much dying to this world, it's dying in this world. It's the daily sufferings, the daily putting down of what our guts and our worldly desires want to do. I think that is the bigger struggle for you and me. It is for myself, suffering on a daily basis. You see, Jesus... He does not remove the fact that we will all stop breathing, but he does change death. He doesn't change the fact that our hearts are going to stop beating, but he does change death. Death becomes a daily thing now. If you're a Christian, death is not an ultimate thing anymore. It is now a daily thing. So as we take the next three weeks looking at the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, I'm going to ask you a very basic question. Why is Jesus' death so important for our everyday living? I know that it's important for our salvation. But what about when you're in the cubicle, talking to your neighbor, talking to your wife and your kids, putting gas in your car at Trader Joe's? What does the death of Jesus have to do with any of that? Certainly it's crossed your mind, right? It, It has mine especially in my earlier years of thinking about Jesus and learning about Jesus, I would think, what is the big deal about the death? People are so big on the death, death of Jesus, Jesus dead, blood on the cross. I get it, I get it, but why are we so fascinated with it? I mean, I go to other people's funerals, and we celebrate a life well-lived, and we mourn the fact that we probably won't ever see them again because they're dead and then they're in the ground, but, but I don't talk about it 50 years later with the same passion. I get over it after a little bit of time. It's, it's how we are. But with Jesus, it's like that's all people want to talk about. Maybe that's crossed your mind. So I think who's going to help us in this case answer some of these questions is actually Jonah. Now, we taught two years ago, um, or almost two years ago, we went through the book of Jonah, and it was helpful. I'm not going to teach the book of Jonah. You can always go online and listen to those sermons if you want it thoroughly and exegetically taught. But I'm going to borrow from his story a little bit because I think for the next three weeks, he's going to help lead us. Puts together a framework for us. So we're going to be in Jonah 1. Don't turn there, though. Stay in 2 Corinthians if you have a Bible. 
And just to catch you up, God speaks to his prophet, his chosen prophet Jonah, and says, go to a wicked people. A people which Jonah says, I will not go. So what he does is he heads in the opposite direction, trying to escape the presence of God to alleviate the guilt he feels and and actually the despising he has in his heart towards those people. So he finds himself in the belly of a ship. And this ship starts getting beat up in a storm, battered. The, The Bible uses the word a tempestuous storm. It starts coming apart. And you have hardcore mariners and sailors that are freaking out to the point where they all start praying to their own gods, which doesn't fix anything. The storm just gets worse. So they start casting lots, which is our equivalent of flipping a coin or or, or maybe rolling some dice to see whose fault is this. But they knew, the Bible says, that Jonah was running from the Lord. So they go get him. They bring him up. And Jonah says this in verse 11. Or the sailors say this, What shall we do to you, Jonah, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Okay, pause just for a minute, right? So you're there and I'm there in this, sea, in, in this, this little scene, right? I'm throwing him overboard. Are you helping me? <laughs> it's him or us. And every time I think of prophets in my mind, I think VeggieTales did this to me, by the way. I think of squatty little cucumber or some weak, insipid, you know, guy. I don't think linebacker, so I'm not thinking I even need any help, to be honest with you. I'm going to get that guy overboard. But I might turn to you and say, hey, you heard him like I heard him. God's given us an answer. Let's get him overboard. Our answer will be fixed. The storm will be stilled. The waters will be cool. We can get on with our lives. I think that's what all of us would expect. Yet, verse 13, nevertheless, the Bible says, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. God just gave them an answer. An answer that would save the entire crew. But a man, Jonah, would lay down his life for others. Does this sound familiar at all? It's a picture of the gospel. Nevertheless, the men rode hard, not trusting in the Lord for his resource, but trusting in our own resource to get life instead of death. Does that sound familiar too? I think this impulse to depend on our own resources and refuse God's means of deliverance, I think it's stamped deeply and our soul, it's embedded inside of all of us. And I think every world religion agrees with me because you could choose any world religion you can even conceive of and they all have a set of oars for you. To row, to row hard. Buddhism, there's oars. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Hindu, they're oars. Here's an oar, start rowing. You see these sailors, they weren't being weird by doing this, they're being human. We think that we would throw him overboard. I think we would all be found rowing in that boat. I think this is why we're so prone to treat Jesus as a religion and just row and row and row because then we get to be a hero. We get to stay in control. We don't have to yield any control to anyone. We're in control. The Bible goes on to say this, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Those four words right there, but they could not. That is the hinge on which this entire story turns. The storm was so oppressive 
and so overwhelming that they could not get through it. The storm of God's judgment, in other words, is much stronger than we are. I mean, we'll do anything to escape the storm and still the waters. We'll do anything. But unless we trust in the sacrifice of another, even a better Jonah, that storm will rage and will remain over our heads, just as these men would have struggled with if they kept denying this and kept Jonah in the boat. The storm would have remained. I do believe that even in a room this size, even with faces that I see all the time, I still believe that there are people in this room that are still in the storm. Still in the storm. It still rages over your head. You've not trusted in Jesus, but we would find you rowing, rowing really hard. And you know it's not working. You must be exhausted. The rowing. Maybe today can be a day where you say, but I cannot, just like they did. The storm's too much. The storm's too much. I cannot. I'm going to have to trust in what God gave me as an answer. I'm not able to produce an answer right now. The story goes on to say that, therefore, they called out to the Lord after they realized they could not. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. What they're saying is this. Hey, 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 don't put his sins on my life. God, I mean, obviously, we're in this jam because of Jonah. We've got innocent blood. Don't put his blood on us. Don't, don't give his sin to us. The beauty in that is God is telling you and me in a much deeper storm that it is not, it's not sin coming to us, it's sin leaving us. Jesus, a better Jonah, a much better prophet with a much deeper message for life and salvation, did not just have blood put on our head, but innocent blood put on our head. He did something Jonah could never do. He doesn't give us sin. He takes our sin and he gives us a perfectly heavily laden life. You see beauty in this and how God works in our storms. It's on the cross that Jesus' death, death, literally removes our death and installs life instead. Envision a seed going into the ground, dying, but life instead for you and me. Men casting him away, God forsaking him, wrath and justice falling on him, death so that you could increase so that life could come. This is what helps us read passages like Romans 6, which you've heard. Hear it through these ears, though, as we talk about the cooperation between death and life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And I know what some of you are thinking. I would be thinking it too. Luke, I get this. It's the salvation message. It still doesn't help me in my cubicle. It still doesn't help me in my boringly predictable, everyday normal. That doesn't help me. How does that death, blood, lifeless, no, how does that help me today when I get home after this gathering and I'm not with everyone anymore? How does it help me? Right? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I want you to think of your storms. What's your big storm right now? Is it marital? Is it professional, relational? Are you in a financial storm? What does your current storm look like? Think of the darkest one you can too. Are you rowing in it? 
What does rowing look like for you in that storm? In other words, not trusting in God's provision, but trusting in your own might, your own strength. What would it look like to stop rowing? You see, when the storms of life come at me, I start looking for an oar. Immediately, instinctively looking for something. Hammer, shovel, something that puts me back in control. Give me something to do. Some ability to roll up my sleeves and preserve myself so that I don't have to trust in what God is doing. I will employ my mind to be anxious about solving the problem. I'll employ my might to do everything within my innovation to navigate through the problem. I'll even employ my heart and my storms to hate it, to despise it, and to resent God for bringing it. I imagine this conversation in my head sometimes whenever I'm in a storm of Jesus saying to me, even though he hasn't like told me this, I envision it. Luke, I'm here for you. I'm provision in this storm. I'm adequate. I'm sufficient. I've got great life for you. All you have to do is just stop stressing, relax, take a breath, trust in me, have some faith. I will come through. I always do. To respond, I would say to Jesus in that moment, that sounds fantastic, Jesus. But there's an oar behind you. Could you hand it to me? Can you reach back and hand me that oar? Because I think I got this. I mean, I heard what you said, but I think I might be able to do this myself. And that's how I live my life. And some of you do the same thing. When we are in storms, we reach for oars. Storms will come to all of us. And in this text that we're looking at right now, Paul shows us how life can come when we feel like everything is dead around us, when everything is threatening us. Paul shows us the cooperation between life and death, right? Let's just look at it. We already read it, but it's in front of you. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We're going to walk our way through this, but we have this treasure, meaning the gospel truth and reality, the good news of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to your benefit at his cost. The gospel, right? We have this in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Pause. We row... Because we want the surpassing glory to belong to us and not God. We flip it. We want the surpassing glory. There's no accolades, high fives in stopping and trusting. There are no trophies for being still and letting God be God. We want glory. We want to be glorious. And that means we have to row. A lot of times... Whenever we're rowing, we are seen, but whenever we are still, we fear that we are anonymous and obscure. I'm going to read to you a passage. I think it'll be up on the screen. It's a quote from a book that I've been reading, and it's a helpful—I think I I told Wes I've suggested it to like 50 people in the last two weeks. I'm such a big fan of it so far. It's a book called Glory Hunger, written by J.R. Vassar, and he says this, Just as Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover up their lost glory, we continue to sow fig leaves in hopes of compensating for our lost glory. We hope to be praised for the fig leaves, but fig leaves wither, and the praise is never enough. We think that if we can string together enough accolades, accomplishments, possessions, beauty, physique, intelligence, or exploits, that we will build an image on which the human... Opinion might render a positive verdict and satisfy the glory hunger that gnaws at us. Is it not glory hunger that fuels a lot of our activity on social media? Calm down. I'm not bashing social media. 
It's not a sin that you're on it, right? I get it. And there's some real great applications for social media, but you have all seen it and you have all done it. Isn't there a sort of hunt for glory sometimes? Like what I said. Comment on what I said. Share what I said. Retweet what I said. Do, ignore, but, but ignore it not. Use any of the emoticons that are now available at your disposal to let me know that you have seen and are responding to what I've said, but don't just, don't just go over it. It's a deep fear we have. It's a glory hunger in all of us. The storm, for many of us, is just simple anonymity. The fear of being passed over and unseen. I mean, if you value, and usually what we do is we take what we value and we try to be that thing, it's obvious. So if you value uh, education, then you are going to demand from everyone around you that they see you as wise and educated, right? Always talking about all the letters after your name, talking about all the achievements you have, trying to lead discussions into areas where you feel smarter, hoping that they pat you on the back and talk about how smart you are. That's what we hunt for. It's a glory. It's a glory hunt. Uh, if it's success, and you value, that's, that's what it's stamped on your ruler, success, and that's how you measure yourself, then you're going to want to make everyone and demand that everyone see you as successful, always patting you on the back for all of your experience and the things that you know that no one else knows and how awesome you are. If it's winsomeness and you value personality, then you're going to want to be the life of the party everywhere you go, right? Always invited, always welcome. This is how we do it. We want the surpassing glory to belong to us. Paul says no. He says we're common jars of clay. The sailor in us disagrees. The sailor disagrees. I think when we trust in the death of Jesus, what that does for our everyday living is it allows us to just relax and say God is enough. I can die to that. I could be obscure. I could be ignored. I could be left out. Sure, it might ding a little bit, but I don't feed off of that. Because God has singled me out and given me value. He's given me a name. He's given me an identity. He has dressed me with something otherworldly. Think of me as you will, but I'm satisfied. That's what the death of Jesus does for us. This means you can fire your PR agent. You could fire him. You are free and liberated to be unseen. I am okay to be unrecognized, and so are you. We're free to be obscure. You can sleep well tonight, even if you know that someone doesn't think you're totally awesome. You can make it 30 minutes without checking your email just in case someone needs you really bad, making you feel needed in that moment. That's another sermon. You can make it 30 seconds without checking Facebook or Twitter or anything that you have put yourself out there to be kicked around by just the masses. You can make it. You can fire your PR agent because God is enough. And you've been singled out by a creator who doesn't just love you, but proved his love by coming to earth as man and dying as a seed goes into the ground. So put your oar down. Put the leaves and the leaf, fig leaf coverings, put them down. God is enough. I know there's a lump of people in here that would tell themselves and tell others, but Luke, none of this applies to me because I don't even care what people think about me. 
Just stop it for a minute, okay? Everybody cares what people think about them. Everybody does. To say that you don't care what people think about you is to say, I am not human. You might not be fixated on it or fascinated with it. You might not even lose any sleep over it, okay? That might be true. But everybody cares what people think about them, right? Everybody does. And if you stand on those two legs, but I don't, I don't care... All that tells your average person is that you want to be seen as the person that doesn't care about what people think about them. Because you're above the petty fray, and I'm strong and independent, and I don't follow the flock of sheep. I am my own man, you know, my own woman. <laughs> you're probably worse than all of us. You do care what people think. I have the same temptation in me, though, to say, I don't really care. Be careful. Sometimes in our attempt to say we don't care about what people think about us, is to devalue people, not just what they think, but people themselves. You find yourself having a hard time doing community a lot of times, I'd bet. Be careful with that. Let's look at verse 8. I can't go down that rabbit trail. Verse 8, in Paul's comments to us, we are afflicted in every way. Okay, so this is, it reads choppy because you see, you see tandem thoughts. They're working with each other, but they're very different from each other. So we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And and he continues doing the same thing. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you see the juxtapositions? For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death, big key verse right here, don't miss it. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Life in you. J.B. Phillips says it this way, we are always facing death, but this means that you know more and more about life. You see how they're holding hands? Death and life. We row because affliction leads us to despair instead of comfort. Very often we go straight to despair, right? Whatever your big storm is that you're keeping in mind. Doesn't it feel a little bit more like a jailer than a teacher? Something to be escaped and despised and hated. And we struggle, don't we? Knowing, is God doing this? Or is the devil doing it? Is this something I need to rebuke? Embrace somewhere in between? I don't even really know how to pray because I don't know the answer to that. Isn't that a struggle for many? Listen, I'm not saying that the devil's not involved. The enemy of your soul is active about destroying you. That's very correct theology. That is true, right? But, but your storm is under the supervision of God. That's hard. That's even controversial. It's probably upsetting a couple or few of you. Your storm, whatever it is, however bad it is, is under supervision. You don't believe me? Look at the cross. That's a bigger storm than what you're struggling with. Death involved. And God did not just supervise that. He designed it for your benefit. Read the book of Job. The entire book shows the exact same thing. God is supervising an affliction and a storm that has come on a man. By the way, Job is just a picture of Jesus, who was a better Job, that wasn't persecuted all the way up to death, but actually died, even though he was more innocent than Job ever was. 
That's what we're meant to see in that. What is it that you're struggling with, the big storm? It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. I know it's left you frightened and exposed and mad, and you're looking for a way out of it. I would just say, as you're treating it as a jailer and rebuking devils and demons out of it, stop for a moment and find where Jesus is at. What is Jesus doing? I'm finding myself more and more when I'm in storms, as much as I'm trying to maneuver out of them and depend on God to get me out of those storms, counting, counting how thankful I am that God is doing some very beautiful things in that same moment. You know, me and my wife have done that a couple times here even in the last week. Storm here? Yes, but look what God is doing. Look how amazing this is. Where is Jesus in your storm? It's also another sermon. I hate affliction and I hate being exposed. I hate exposure and storms. Many times when I come out of it, though, on the other side of it, I do see life. And I think this is what Paul is saying when he says we're always facing death, daily facing death. But this means that you know more and more about life. Paul is not saying, I love storms, bring it on. He's just saying it's worth it. It's worth it. I want more life. You want more life? I want more life. I want to know more life. I want to see more life around me. But what Paul and Jesus say is that true life is found in daily death because they're cooperating with each other. Whenever I say no to something that my flesh really wants or a storm is pushing in and making me go to the very ends of myself and I have to trust in, in Jesus instead of row my guts out, whenever I'm dying, there, there's life that comes out of it. This is what it says. Let's get back to Paul's work in verse 16. He says this, so we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The last reason I think we, we row is we row because we lose heart. We trust in what we can see, and what we see is not good. And Paul is saying, don't believe the hype. Don't believe it. I know it looks bleak. It's not bleak. God wins. God is going to win. You have to tell yourself that sometimes, don't you, when you're in your storm? I mean, if you can't utter anything out of the guts of your soul, at least utter out God wins. I don't know how he wins right now. I don't know how in this big pile of mess he wins, but God wins. That I know. God wins. What looks like death is, in fact, life, even though we can't see it. I mean, I'm sure your, your body's falling apart, your mind's falling apart. That's what Paul is saying. Yet, it's preparing our shoulders for a different weight. It's eternal. You know, when I think about Dr. Frankenstein in his lab, in the early parts of that story, surrounded by body parts and corpses, looking all he can see is death. He tries to manufacture life. I think of the sailors looking around and the ship's breaking apart. And they're throwing stuff over the side. All they see is death, the promise of death. They start rowing to bring about their own life. And I'm just like them. 
looking around, seeing death just like you do, storms, affliction, suffering, and I try to make life happen. I think what I love about the storms, if there's anything to love about a storm, is the fact that it drives us to the very end of ourselves, a place where we don't typically go. It's a very uncomfortable place, isn't it? To be in the midst of the storm, it's uncomfortable. It's not just awkward, it's painful, but it's a place where God does a lot of work. The very end of a storm, it's where our glory is threatened. It's where our comfort and our security is utterly threatened and tossed around and we look around and we see no answers. We feel like there's no hope, nowhere to go. And that, in fact, is the crucible that God works and maneuvers life. That's where faith comes from. You wanna know how to get trust and faith, how to believe more, how to have more, it's in storms. That's where you're gonna find it. Being in the storm where the water's coming up over the side and in that moment trusting the Lord. The Holy Spirit giving you strength to believe and you saying yes to that. That's where we find it. You know, at the end of Frankenstein, at the end of Frankenstein, the doctor dies, Dr. Frankenstein, Victor, right? And the scene goes like this. A ship captain walks in and finds the creator dead. And leaning over the creator, weeping and crying, is the monster, the unnamed monster, who was a murderer, a scandal, a hater, torn up inside, rebellious inside, rebellious outside, And in literature, it's this iconic theme. It's a picture that's hard to duplicate, and it is creation mourning the death of a creator. That's what we see. But as iconic and as poetic as that is, is plagiarism. It's 200-year-old plagiarism, but it's plagiarism. Mary Shelley ripped that off from a much, much better story because our creator did not die a death trying to kill us. Our creator died a death successfully rescuing us. What looks like death to all of us is, in fact, life. We're very, very much worse than the monster that we read about in Frankenstein, yet our creator is much better and much more successful than the one we see in this book. So I'm finishing, but I do know that there are people here, and I, I really believe it, that you are tired of rowing, exhausted from rowing, seeking glory, seeking comfort, only trusting in what you can see, and you just wore out. And the only way you're ever going to find life or reprieve is to trust in a death, not your rowing, but in a death. I don't care how long you've gone to church. I don't care how many of your family members love Jesus. I don't care how many Bibles you have in your house. I don't care if you have one on your bedside table. I don't care if you know all the language. I don't care if you're a member at another church. I don't care if you're a member in this church. I don't care if you give to a church. I don't care if you've named your kids Christian names. I don't care about any of that. Are you trusting in a death that is not your own? Are you trusting in that? Are you not like the sailors where you're able to say, please put his innocent blood on me. Please count his life towards me. I need you to to swap lives because I'm desperate. Today would be a day that you say, but I cannot row anymore. And you repent for it. 
Repent for trying to alleviate your own life of all your own struggles and storms and trust in one who has already done it for you. Because we have, we have with our hands pitched a better Jonah overside into waters much more murky, much more dark than what they were dealing with. Death itself grabbed our better prophet and pulled him down for our benefit. Today would be a day that you would recognize that in your soul. Some of us, we are not far from Jesus, but we are seeking glory. And I would just repeat the same thing I said earlier. There is freedom in being obscure and being unseen. And just relaxing in the clothing that was given to you by God himself through the work of Jesus. That's sufficient. You don't have to be on a glory hunt any longer. You don't have to. Some of us, were looking for safety from our storms, to get away from the jailer, to get away from the devils that are chasing after our heels. I would say that this would be a time where you would look at Jesus, find Jesus. Where is he? Is he even visible? I think some, some parts of us, we just assume that he's there. Yeah, yeah, I know he's there because he's supposed to be there because that's the way I always grew up is that Jesus is there in my pain and my trouble. But, but, but where? Okay, but where? Can, can you name it? Can you spell it out? Can you thank him for being there? Can you worship him in the midst of it all? Can you do that? Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read this last verse, one sentence, all together. It's verse 15 of Jonah's story. Can it get up on the screen? Did I give you that one? There it is. So they picked, read it with me. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And that is what has happened for every person that is in Jesus. The sea and the storm, they stop for us. They stop. No more raging, no more rowing. Just peace because of a better prophet for you and me. Let me pray for you. God, you have stopped the raging sea around us by hurling by my hands a perfect, benevolent, and generous rescuer in Jesus into a storm that I should have died in. And even though I row now, Lord, and even though I panic, you persistently rescue me. You show us, Lord, that death, even death, is not ultimate over us because it did not reign over you. I think about the storm, Father, and I think about your disciples. They did not know that there was going to be an empty tomb. They didn't know that. They just saw death. They just saw a storm that was threatening and huge and oppressive, and they didn't know. Father, that we would trust, that we would stop rowing and say, this storm hurts, and this storm is painful, and my flesh wants to do all kinds of things. I'm just thrashing and flailing, but I need to stop. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you stop our thrashing you show us how, how safe we are in our storm. That you remind us that death has totally lost a sting. The judgment has lost its teeth on our lives. That you would remind us of that. Oh, Father, I need to be reminded of that all the time. That in the storms, and even looking death square in the eyes, I have absolutely nothing to fear. Your life, death, and life have redefined it all. So, Father, we submit all of our rowing to you today. We submit it all. All of our hunt for glory, all of our hunt for stability, all of our hunt for comfort, all of our hunt for control, 
we yield it to you. And we say, I can die to that. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We celebrate and we sing. And it's in your name we do these things. Amen.